Well, good morning, everyone. I want you to think for a moment with me about having a guest over to your house. We've all had uh, people visit us from time to time, and the preparations we make say something about the importance of the occasion and, and the significance of the guest that we will be receiving. One of the things that I enjoy about the neighborhood that we live in is that it's not unusual for somebody to give us a call and say, hey, you have a egg that we could borrow or a cup of sugar or a tool that we need to use around the house that I don't happen to have. And we always say, you bet, you bet. come on over. We don't mind at all. And when that happens, we don't rush to clean up the house and get everything in perfect order. We just say, come on over. There may be dishes in the sink and there's probably action figures hanging from the ceiling fan and and lately, there's probably remodeling tools laid out on the floor somewhere in our home. That's just a, a day in the life of this a piece of home. But when the holidays roll around, it looks a little different. <laughs> when friends and family come over to share that special meal, we make some unique preparations. We have usually some special decorations that are out. We might pull out some special dishes for the occasion. But everything about it says this is something different. This is special. This is unique. Sometime soon, I believe that uh, President Bush and his wife, Laura, will be in town for a dedication of a facility being named in honor of Laura Bush. Now, regardless of your political affiliation, I think we would all agree that if you and I found out that, that President Bush and his family was coming over to our house for dinner, we would make some pretty special arrangements, wouldn't we? <laughs> I feel pretty certain that Terry would not let me leave my bike propped up against my desk in the front uh, entrance into our home. <laughs> she would probably have something to say about the boys' room and how clean they need to be. We might cater the meal in, so that's something we don't have to worry about. The point is, we would go over and beyond for this very unique opportunity to have a former president of the United States visit our home. The preparations that we make say something about the significance of the occasion and the importance of the guest. This morning, Paul or Peter will draw our attention to the most important day in all of history when the King of Kings visits our home. Peter will remind us of the promised return of Jesus Christ. And in response, we will consider the preparations that we have made in the expectation of his return. Are we living with that expectation of Christ's return? And what does the condition of our house say about our anticipation of that day? Before we look at his word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to be reminded as we prayed together this morning, uh, it's so easy uh, to get lost in the day-to-day routine of how we conduct ourselves and, and manage life in this world, our jobs, our families, uh, school events and, and responsibilities, chores, that we don't often stop and think about the day that is coming when you will return. And, and our heart is not often set on the expectation of that day. So I pray that very uniquely this morning there may be a Holy Spirit indwelled awareness of this day 
that we might live in anticipation and, and because of that live differently as we look for your return. Father, will you remind us of that this morning in a very life-transforming way? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you will, turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last in verse 16. Uh, before we do that, I want to uh, remind you of how what we led, read last week, uh, Peter affirmed his commitment to reminding those in the church of what he said they already knew to be true. He wanted to keep them stirred up and alert so that they would remember his words even after he was gone. And Peter was motivated to, to make this message known because he knew that there were some in the church who were sleepwalking. They had closed their eyes to the truth. And they were being led away by what he would later term or describe as destructive heresies. And so now Peter turns his attention to validating the message that he has offered in the context of these false messages from these false teachers that were entering the church. With that in mind, read with me beginning in verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, because Peter begins this part of the letter by asserting that the apostles did not make up these cleverly invented stories, we have to assume that someone is suggesting that they did. And we know that that, in fact, is the case because as you read the entire letter, we find that the specific story that the false teachers are suggesting that the apostles made up is the promise of Christ's return. The false teachers who were entering into the church were people of influence. And they were trying to convince those within the church that much like the, the Greek mythology that they knew well in their culture, that, that the Christian stories included myths as well. <laughs> Normal people made up fascinating stories to explain the unseen world, including the origin and the destiny of man. And according to the false teachers, the return of Christ was one such mythological story. And let me just tell you, as we think through this together, I want to remind you that that understanding, that belief exists to this day. And not just from non-Christians who would probably look at all religion as in some kind of way an invented story by the minds of men. But this opinion is alive and well in the church today. I know that firsthand. As a teenager, I sat in a Bible study with the leading member of a church who explained to the group that I was in that the stories of the Bible, at least many of them, were 
were describing things that never really happened. They were written to make a point, no less, but the events themselves never actually occurred. I remember thinking to myself as a young man learning to grow in my faith, well, well, how do you know which ones are true and which ones aren't true? Which ones are made up and which ones are real? <laughs> well, the false teachers that Peter had in mind looked at the promise of Christ's return and they said, that one they made up. Remember how I told you last week that what you believe influences how you live? Well, think about how you might decide to conduct your life if you did not live with an expectation of Christ's return. After all, if you're not expecting an important guest, there's really no reason to waste your time trying to get your house in order, is there? And that kind of deceit will put you to sleep. And that's what was happening then and now. And so the reminder that that Paul is diligent to speak is the reminder that Jesus will return. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking specifically of the promise of Christ's return. But how do we know that he isn't just making this story up? Well, he goes on to tell us, he says, because we have seen it with our own eyes. You'll notice as you're reading through this that he's changed pronouns, hasn't he? Up to this point, he's talked about, I am reminding you. I have stirred you up. And now all of a sudden, he says, we. We have seen it. We have been eyewitnesses. In so doing, Paul is saying, in effect, don't just take my word for it. There were other people there who saw the very same thing that I will describe to you now. And what exactly was it that Peter saw? He said this, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his his majesty when he, Jesus, received glory from God the Father, along with what he describes as an audible voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I I am well pleased. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We were with Jesus on the holy mountain that day that that happened. And when you and I read this, what immediately comes to mind for most of us is the transfiguration of of Jesus Christ, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. Matthew describes it this way in chapter 17, verse 1. He says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, the author of the book we're reading, and James, and John his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared with them, talking to him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to to be here? If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, A voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them, touched them and said, Get up and and do not be afraid. 
After lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Peter is saying, that is the day that we witness Jesus as the glorified King of Kings. What I find interesting is what's not included, right? Peter didn't talk about the day that water was turned into wine. He didn't talk about the day that that the blind were made to see and the lame were made to walk. He, He didn't even identify those miraculous events where there was resurrection from the dead, including Jesus himself. For Peter, these were not the events that necessarily validated the return of Christ. Undoubtedly, they were important. Because that's why John would write in his gospel these words when he said, I am writing these things to you, many of which I describe to you. The healing of the the lame, the made the blind to see, resurrecting the dead. John says, these things I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. And Peter would agree. It's all important. But this particular event for Peter is what he turns to as the most powerful evidence of the future rule and reign of Christ. Why is that? Here's some reasons why I think this was Peter's conviction. You see, up until this point, Jesus made many claims about who he is and and the miracles he performed served to validate those claims. He said, I'm the bread of life. And then he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He, he said that I am living water. And he turned water into wine. He, he used water to wash blindness from a man's eyes. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And with his voice, he called Lazarus from the tomb. But at the transfiguration of Jesus, he didn't say, I am. God the Father said, he is. He is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Up until this point, everything that Jesus did, as miraculous as it was, was seen by men behind a veil that hid the fullness of his divine glory. Here on the mountain, that veil was removed. God the Father pulled back the curtain and revealed the majestic glory of He who will rule and reign over all the earth for all eternity. As we learned when we walked through Philippians together, it told us that that Jesus took on the, the form of God, the form of a servant, appearing as a man. Not even the the resurrected Jesus that was seen by so many people revealed his full divinity, co-mingled with the voice of God as a a spirit-revealed revelation of the glorious King. I believe this is so important to Peter because it is here that he was given a taste of the kingdom to come. He, along with James and John, were able to see it with their own eyes. And what they saw uniquely represented Christ at his return. 
And I believe perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke to all of his disciples and he and he told all of them, some of you, not all of you, some of you will not see death until you see his kingdom come in power. All of the disciples saw the resurrected Christ, but only some of them saw the transfiguration of Jesus in that majestic moment of glory. And what they saw only made sense because what they already knew to be true. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What Peter seems to be saying here is that the Old Testament had already revealed what they happened to witness with their own eyes. It wasn't a cleverly devised tale as the false teachers suggested because it didn't originate with them. The Old Testament prophets all foretold of the future rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter might have had specific things in mind as he recalled the the testimony of Scripture. But I think most likely he's looking at the whole testimony of Scripture and says, it all points to Jesus as the ruling and reigning king over all the earth. That is what Scripture is pointing us to. But maybe there were specific things that he had in mind. Like what the prophet Daniel said when he wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Peter would say, That is what we saw. That is what we saw. Or maybe he had Psalm 2 in mind. Psalm 2 is a a messianic psalm written to describe the coming of King Jesus. Right? And so those words are describing what we anticipate. And I want you to listen as I read this passage because it reflects a lot of what Peter says he saw. Psalm 2 says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those, however, who take refuge in him. Peter said, we fell on our face and worshipped that day on the mountain because what we saw with our eyes is what was consistent with what we had already been told was true. We witnessed the glorified Jesus who rules and reigns over all the earth. Which Peter then goes on to say 
is the very reason you should pay attention to what God has revealed in his word. And pay attention to it, he says, is a lamp shining in the darkness. It reminds me of Psalm 119. If you read that, it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we need that lamp because the world that we live in until Christ comes back is a very dark place. I want you to think about this. This past summer, Bruce and and Larry uh, took some of the volunteers and students on a caving trip in New Mexico. The caves are like, there's a network of tunnels, kind of like a, a maze. There are dead ends and and dangerous places where you can actually stumble into deep holes. Sometimes those holes are filled with water. (laughs) And as long as you have a headlamp on, you can see where you're going. But as soon as you turn that light off, which I believe is one of the things that they did, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is pitch black. Are any of the students here that went on that trip? Okay, so let me ask you a question. How smart would it be for anyone who has never been to those caves before to walk in without a light and try to find them their their way around? Not smart. Not smart. In fact, what are the chances that they're going to get lost? A hundred percent. You're exactly right. Peter is telling us that when we walk in the dark world, the same is true. The chances of you getting lost without the light of God's word is 100%. Just like you would never walk into a pitch black cave without a light to navigate your way. In the same way, never try to navigate your way through this world without the light of his word without the counsel of godly people, without the, the body of Christ who walks together, without listening to the wisdom of your mom and dad, the chances of you getting lost is 100%. And remember, if you're blind or if you have your eyes closed, you can still have the light but never see it. And it'd be like you don't have it at all. But there will be a day, Peter says, when you won't need the light. The words he uses here are like poetry. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. That's beautiful. The word for morning star literally means light bringer. It reminds me of 1 John 1.5 that says, In him there, he, is, he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When Christ returns... His light will fill the earth and everything you know to be true in your heart because of what has been revealed to you in His Word will be visible with your eyes. What you've known in part, you will then know in full. You won't need a a lamp of His Word because His Word will be made visible and complete in the coming of Jesus Christ. Peter got a glimpse of that reality on the mountain that day. And he knew what it was because of what was revealed in God's word. And he says, one day, all of heaven and all of earth will see what we saw when the Lord returns in glory as the eternal king and judge over all the earth. Live 
for that day. Have your house ready and prepared for the arrival of the king. And then he goes on to say in verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Despite what the false teachers are trying to tell you, we didn't make this up. We saw it with our own eyes, and we knew what it was because of what had already been revealed in his word. Because man has no ability, never has, never will have any ability to discover what God has not sovereignly decided to make known. Peter didn't make this up. And no one else in the Bible did either. What we know is completely dependent upon what God has de- decided to reveal to specific people at a specific point in time, for a specific purpose of his kingdom. The words of the prophets are not their words. It's the words of God. The prophet Jeremiah describes it this way. He says, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. He goes on later to contrast that with False prophets, false teachers. And he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the the prophets, these false prophets, who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak of a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. It, It was true in the time of Jeremiah. It was true in the early church. And it is true to this day. In this book... We have the whole counsel of God. His words given to His people to carry out His purposes on earth. In preparation, all of this culminates to the day when the King returns for all eternity. Eugene Peterson says it like this in his paraphrase of 2 Timothy Listen to what he says. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. Then he goes on to say, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say on everyone, living and dead. He is about to break into the open with his rule. So proclaim the message with intensity. Keep on your watch. Challenge, warn, and urge your people. Don't ever quit. Sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? Because that's how Scripture works. It is a gift of God, spoken by Him to guide our path. It validates the things that are from Him that ultimately point to Christ, in whom we have everything we need for all of life and godliness. What He reveals is the instruction of how we are to prepare our home for His arrival. And it begs the question, Is your house ready 
for his return. It's my opinion that very few people in this room doubt the return of Christ. I think we would all agree that we believe he's coming back. And I don't know of any situation, to my knowledge, that somebody's teaching against that. And so for that reason, I think it'd be real easy for us to hear this morning, hear what we've talked about this morning, and say, well, I believe he's coming back, so this this really doesn't apply to me. And I think that would be a terrible mistake. And so I want us to think about how this does apply to us together. The message that Peter has given us under the inspiration of God said that what he heard from the testimony of Scripture validated what he encountered from personal experience, which then changed the way he lived in expectation of Christ's return. That's what he's told us. And I believe the very same thing should describe you and I today. Now, this really is a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) Do you think that life looked different for Peter after he saw what he did in the day of transfiguration of Jesus when that glory was displayed to him, when, when that divine nature was revealed? Was he any different after that experience? I told you it was a stupid question. Of course he did. I have no doubt that Peter was forever changed by that day. In fact, how utterly ludicrous would it have been for Peter to have been there, seen what he saw and said, wow, that was cool. I think I'll go back to fishing now. It's crazy to even consider that, isn't it? If you would, just flip back to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Listen again. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In a similar way, you too have encountered the divine nature, a glimpse, if you will, of what is to come through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, through your surrendered life to Jesus Christ. Why would you ever want to go back to your old way of life? How can you not be ever for cha- forever changed by that moment? How can what Jesus has done in your past not affect how you live in the future? Peter Peter answers that question actually for us in in what we've read together already by telling us that the only way that that happens is because you have willingly closed your eyes to his truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have seen the light. You have encountered the divine nature through the fellowship you have with the Holy Spirit. And your life should be forever changed peter wasn't perfect was he we know his story thank goodness it's his story that's laid out for everybody to see and not our own but we read his story and we find some encouragement because we see he wasn't a perfect man he made some mistakes along the way but he never never stumbled into the disobedient lifestyle permitted by the false teachers 
And as long as we stay alert, stirred up, diligent in godliness, as long as we pay attention, as Peter says, to the light of his word, neither will we. Our focus needs to be on the reminder that Peter is giving us in this letter. Jesus Christ is coming back. Did you hear what I said? Jesus Christ is coming back. And for that reason, may we be diligent to make sure our house is in order for his arrival. And not because when he comes, he's going to put on the white glove and walk through your house and see if he can find any dirt. You know why I know that? Because of what the Bible tells us when it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no dirt for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, our preparations always say something about the importance of the occasion and the importance of the guest. Are you living in grateful anticipation of his return? And what does the condition of your house say about the expectation you have of his arrival? I want you to think about that this week. We don't often stop and think, do we, about his return because we get so busy in our day. Well, take some time this week to think about his return and and what difference it should make in your life as we anticipate his arrival. Have a conversation with somebody about that. What a great conversation to have, right? Think about his return. Let's pray together. Father, we do anticipate that day in gratefulness. Because of what your scripture tells us, we... uh, anticipate the day when you make things right when you tell us that there's no more tears no more mourning no more sin when you restore all things to the way that you intend them to be for all eternity i do believe you've given us a glimpse of that through the fellowship that we have with the divine your holy spirit and so father because we've tasted the goodness of what is to come may we never go back to the old way of life, the old neighborhoods we roamed in, but may we be steadfast, fixing our eyes on you, Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, the architect of our home. May we be diligent to grow in godliness and sweet anticipation of your most glorious arrival. We look for, long for, anticipate that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, we pray this in your name.